This is the Cross-Border Interviews. Welcome to the Cross-Border Interviews, the show where we sit down with local elected leaders from all across Canada. Over the course of this episode, we will be learning about who our guest is, what drives them, and how they are working to make their community a better place for everyone who lives there. Now, we are honored today to welcome to the show from the City of London, Ontario, Deputy Mayor Sean Lewis. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I've had a chance to listen to a few episodes. Uh, I particularly uh, just over the weekend was listening to the episode with Cam Guthrie, the uh, mayor of Guelph. So uh, listener and, and honored now to be a guest on the show. Well, I appreciate that. So if you've listened to the show, you know what my first question is, and it is no exception for anyone. So where did your sense of duty to serve come from, Sean? Well, this might be the uh, most uh, unusual answer that you've gotten to that question. Um, if I have to say where my sense of duty comes from, it's probably from comic books. I have been an avid, avid reader of comic books since my earliest memories. I mean, I was taking comic books to, to school to read uh, in grade one. Like, the, it's, it's always been a part of my life. And, and, you know, there's been a lot of good moral lessons learned from there. You know, that, that old Spider-Man uh, adage, with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, Captain America or Superman's sense of duty uh, to stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. Uh, so I'd have to say I got a lot of life lessons uh, from those characters. So uh, really, it's my, my love of, of reading and of comic books in particular uh, that have really given me a sense of duty in terms of serving others, of, of giving back, of, of being a voice for those who can't be a voice. And that's where, where my interest in politics sprang from, I think. So I, I guess I have to ask the very political question, DC or Marvel? Like, which one do you go to? Because I see the Superman. For those who are listening, you may not be able to see this, but uh, Sean has a big giant Superman logo right behind him right now. So is it DC that you were more interested in as a kid? Uh, you know, actually, it wasn't. It was Marvel that captivated me more as a kid. Um they were a little bit easier uh, to acquire at the variety store in, in the town where I grew up. So uh, it was a little bit easier to follow the Fantastic Four and the X-Men and the Avengers than it was to follow the Justice League. Uh, although uh, I, I am old enough to remember Crisis on Infinite Earths when uh, DC sort of rebooted their universe. Uh, and that's when I kind of started following along with DC a little bit. So as a, as a kid, I was a big Marvel fan. Uh, as a teen and, and into my early 20s, I shifted more towards DC. Uh, nowadays, you would find a little bit of both uh, hanging out on the read table in my comic book room. Uh, I pick up a few from each company. Uh, there's some good product being produced by both. Listen, there's no doubt uh, in terms of movies, Marvel rules the roost. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, DC, uh, but Marvel is kicking butt at the box office. Uh, but when you get into some of the smaller screen productions or or the animated productions, I think DC does a wonderful job there. So I enjoy it all. I, I, I am so, I, I love these conversations because I never know which way they're going to go. And I can't imagine waking up at eight o'clock in the morning and thinking to myself, I'm going to talk about DC and Marvel with a mayor, deputy mayor of a city in Canada. But here we are. But we could talk about comics and DC and Marvel for about three hours, probably for a full day. But I want to talk about your journey to municipal elected office. Um, I always find it fascinating to find the backstory of people to get to who you are. Was politics discussed in the household growing up or was it something that, as uh, as the old adage say, you don't talk about politics and religion at the dinner table, so it wasn't discussed around the dinner table or were you the exception and it was actually was talked around the dinner table? Uh, no, that was definitely not something that was talked about uh, around the dinner table very often at uh, my house. Uh, I can remember vaguely uh, my mom in particular uh, doing some election signs uh, for a federal NDP candidate a couple of times, but but very vaguely, right? It wasn't really something that was talked about uh, at the dinner table. Now, it was something that I would sometimes have some conversations with at uh, school with teachers. Um but I really, I really disengaged from any sort of interest in, in politics at all in my teen years. You know, I, I started working, uh, and honestly, I'm going to say 
the best thing I did to prepare me for this job was I, I took a job at McDonald's when I was 14 years old. Um, and the training and, and experience I got through that uh, has really served me well in this role. Uh, Why do you say that? But, <clears throat> well, you, you learn work ethic. Um, you learned to never ask anybody to do something you're not willing to do yourself. I mean, I started out cleaning dinner tables and toilets before I was old enough to work in the kitchen and, and handle the fry vats, right? So um, you learned to uh, provide customer service. You learned to respond to complaints. You, you took the flack when a customer <laughs> wasn't happy with their order, um, which is something you certainly take a lot of in, in political life. Uh, but it just, there was also, it was a franchise. So the owner was very involved in the community, uh, participated in, you know, the summer festivals and charity fundraisers and the crew often volunteered for those things. So there was also that connection to community that I got out of the job uh, that really kept that interest uh, alive a bit. And then as I got into my 20s uh, and started working in a unionized environment, uh, I think that's when my spark really got lit because I served as a union steward uh, for the United Steelworkers in the factory that I was in. Uh, nobody on the midnight shift wanted to volunteer for that gig, so I stuck my hand up and said I would do it. So I got involved in, in a couple of local political campaigns there, uh, started trying on my shoes, um, and found a home uh, with the federal NDP for a while. Uh, and I actually spent 13 years working for a member of parliament. So I worked for Irene Matheson uh, right from her first election victory through to uh, her final term in office before she retired, uh, loved working for Irene, was really inspired by Jack Layton when he was seeking the federal NDP leadership. So that's what sparked my interest in, in really getting active politically. I was a union steward. There was a federal leadership race for the NDP. We had this great local person in Irene that I could really relate to. So I, I dove in headfirst there. But over time, I really got disenchanted by partisan politics. I, I really got to hate the fact that you couldn't support a good idea even though it was a good idea because it came from somebody on the other team that that there wasn't a willingness for the blue and the red and the orange teams to find some common ground on things and, and work together and that really started to turn me off uh, but during my time with irene uh, i was based in the constituency office and one of my jobs was to liaise with city council to, you know, our MPs are away in Ottawa six, seven months of the year. Uh, they can't be at a council meeting uh, to hear what's going on locally. So that was one of my duties was to be a contact with mayor and the local councillors and to hear what the municipality needed from the federal government. And as I continued to do that, I really started to enjoy the fact that there were opportunities for people to work uh, together, even though they may come from different ideological starting points to find common ground. Um, one of the, the things that I really remember is working with, so we had at one point uh, our, our former mayor and now former MP, uh, Ed Holder. Uh, he was the MP in London West. Uh, we had uh, the food bank director and former liberal MP, Glenn Pearson in London North Centre and Irene Matheson in London Fanshawe. And I remember working with uh, Heidi in Ed's office and Miriam Glenn's office and myself in Irene's office because the mayor was making a big infrastructure ask of the federal government, $96 million, the most that London had ever received at that point in time. And the three of us were able, as the constituency office leads, to work together to say, yes, that project makes a lot of sense and so does your project. So let's ask for these together. Let's not let party stripes get in the way of what's best for the city of London. And that really was an inspiring opportunity to to make a change in the community without party politics getting in the way. So when the time came to uh, recognize that Irene was was going to be retiring, and and quite honestly, Chris, being incredibly dissatisfied with representation from my own ward councillor, I decided to take the plunge into municipal politics. And I, I did that having in 2014 been the campaign manager for Josh Morgan, who's now our mayor, Yep. Uh, but at the time was running to be uh, the Ward 7 councillor. So I ran his first successful campaign. I got to see what he was able to accomplish as a Ward councillor during those four years. And so I decided it was time to perhaps take the opportunity to join Josh uh, and jump into the municipal scene.
And that was in 2018 when you first put your name on the ballot, correct? Yes. Yeah, that During was 2018. Your, so prior to 2018, had you ever thought to yourself, one day my name will be on the ballot? Or was this something that was so far out of the realm? Were you comfortable being the guy that people relied on, whether it be Irene or whether it be that campaign manager for Josh, and you never had that inclination? And then in 2018, you finally said, okay, it's either time to put up or shut up and put my name on the ballot. Because I I, I always find it fascinating people telling me why they finally made that switch in their head go off and go, okay, it's time to put my name on the ballot for you. What was it that made you ultimately say, okay, now it's time. You talk about Josh, but there had to be something else. Well, there, there's two parts to that uh, answer, really. So I love two-part answers. <laughs> <laughs> they're better than two-part questions. Um, I would say for a long time, I could never have seen myself putting my name on the ballot. And that was the reality of growing up a young gay person in Canada um, in the time when I was growing up. I just never imagined it would be possible to be myself and be elected to public office. Uh, and I could never imagine not being honest about that and seeking public office. I mean, that kind of, of dishonesty uh, is what leads to people feeling they can't trust politicians. Uh, but over time, uh, and I will say that one of the, the reasons that I was really sparked in getting interested in federal politics was uh, the debate around same-sex marriage was happening at the same time I was uh, serving as a union steward and getting involved in Irene's campaign. So there was a, a personal component to getting involved too. But as time passed, uh, and as I saw you know, social attitudes changing, I mean, it was 2011 which seems like forever ago, but is not all that long ago. It was only in 2011 that our mayor and police chief first marched in a pride parade in the city. And, and London's got a bit of a dark history uh, in its relationships with the LGBTQ plus community, including a former mayor who was found uh, guilty of violating the Ontario Human Rights Code and, and had to pay a personal fine as well as having the city be fined for actions of a, of a previous council. So for a long time, I couldn't imagine that was an opportunity. And I was very happy to be that, uh, that first officer, uh, that guy behind the scenes who was keeping the ship running smoothly uh, while the front person was, was doing their job. I knew I could handle the responsibility of the decision-making. No elected official uh, has an office that runs smoothly and serves the public well without a good staff behind them. That, that's just the reality. One person cannot do this job by themselves. So, I, I knew I could take on. I hear my husband agreeing a hundred percent with you right now, because <laughs> as as the former NDP MLA for the area, he always said the best thing that he ever did was hire good people in his office to make sure that it runs correctly and outreach and community constituents actually had their voices heard. So I agree with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, especially for MPs and MLAs, they spend so much time in the, the provincial legislature or in parliament in Ottawa it's so very, very easy to lose the connection with your constituents on the ground. Uh, those constituency staffers, they have to be an extension of the elected official. They have to be able to respond to people's needs because some of those needs can't wait. You know, if, if your employment insurance uh, hasn't come in and it's been six weeks since you were laid off uh, and the rent's overdue, that can't wait for, for the MP to come back to, to uh, the riding from Ottawa. If you're uh, if you've lost your health card and uh, the bureaucracy is telling you it's going to be uh, you know eight weeks to get it replaced and you've got to go to the emergency room, you need your MLA and their staff to jump in and help get that fixed. So it's really important to have those good people. So having had that responsibility, I was confident I could jump in and be the decision maker. Uh, and as I saw the the changing attitude uh, towards LGBTQ plus individuals in our community, as I saw the more welcoming, accepting attitude of Londoners. And as I was involved in, in so many of the other things, not just being a constituency staffer, but being a, a member of my Legion branch, being on the Optimist Club board, uh, being on the Community Association board, and then serving a term as the Community Association president, uh, being a foster parent, all of those things coming together I, and, and a hockey coach. And, and I knew that my community would support me. 
So I decided it was time to uh, take the plunge. As I said, I really felt like our part of the city was not really well represented at City Hall. I thought, well, nobody else is going to do this. It, I defeated a 24-year incumbent. C campaign wow. after campaign after campaign, there was a vote split um, that kept allowing this incumbent to get in. Uh, in this campaign, uh, I actually had both candidates who ran against the incumbent previously endorse and support me and work on my campaign team because everybody was recognizing that you had to coalesce behind one person if you wanted some change there. So I decided uh, with my community support that I was going to be that guy. I want to ask a very sensitive question, and I apologize for asking this question, but we are recording this in Pride Month in June. This episode will be airing in June as well. When you put your name forward to run for municipal office in 2014, did you do so under the uh, the, the the mindset that I want to better the community, or did you do it under the mindset of I want to show the young Sean Lewis is the young Chris Browns because I grew up in Southern Ontario and I didn't have a, a gay municipal counselor who I could look up to and say, okay, I want to be that person one day, even when I ran for political office in 2010 in my hometown, did you do it under that? Or did you do it under the guys that I just want to be the best counselor to move our city forward? Yeah, I, I really jumped in, not expecting to take up uh, that banner. I, I jumped in just to be the best municipal counselor I could be for our city and, and for my neighborhood, uh, where I saw the day-to-day -day, uh, needs that, that we had. Uh, it has become a cause that I've had to take up, particularly in the last few weeks, as we've seen, well, frankly, a wave of, of hate towards the LGBTQ plus community roll through the region uh, with uh, flag bylaws being changed, with pride flags being ripped down, uh, with threats being made to local pride events. So I've had to take up uh, that responsibility, that that duty, and be that voice as the first and so far the only openly gay member ever elected to London City Council. So I felt that extra weight of responsibility much more recently. I didn't feel that responsibility when I took it on it, because it wasn't about just being a role model uh, for a young Sean out there or a young Chris out there. It was about being a good role model for young people, period. You know, I, I've spent eight years uh, volunteering some of my time helping. I'm not going to claim I'm the head coach because I'm not. I don't have that kind of skill. But uh, volunteering on a hockey bench and, and being a team manager and being a, a trainer and doing those things to help young people develop. And we don't just develop better hockey players. We, we're developing young people into better people. And those were the kids that I, I had in mind when I thought, I'm going to make a difference, not just today, but I'm going to make this a, a better city for them in the future. I want them to be able to grow up here and pursue an education and pursue a career and buy a home and raise their own families and, and continue to call London home. I don't want them to have to go away because they feel like the quality of life here isn't good enough for them. So I, I was thinking about both the, the immediate needs to the community, but about being a role model and, and, and trying to change the narrative, trying to give people some trust in politicians again. So I ran a very uh, grassroots, nuts and bolts focused campaign. I wasn't making big promises. I was talking about the roads that needed to be repaired. I was talking about the park playgrounds that were falling apart and needed to be replaced. Uh, those were the kind of things that I was focused on in the neighborhood rather than sort of the big social issues. But the social issues are there. You have they been are. on council for eight years now. Well, you're in your second term now. You're coming up to your fifth year on council from 2018 when you first got elected. You, Believe I me, it feels go, like eight years sometimes. <laughs> I want to go back to a statement that you made earlier on in the interview about the partisanship that you see federally and provincially. Um, while it's not hypothetically there municipally, you know, and I know, and I, I've talked to many councillors and mayors and Reeves and wardens from across Canada. It's there municipally. While there may not be a party label, you know the blues, the greens, the oranges, the reds, the purples. How do you balance that? How do you balance working with everyone while trying to still stay true to who you are? Because 
if I go talk to a hundred people in your community in London, they will give me a hundred different issues that they believe are important. And you have to dissect all hundred of those issues and try to make the best decision based on the information provided. And you can't look at the people who are coming to you as a liberal or an NDP, but as a Londoner, how do you do that? Well, around the council horseshoe uh, first, I think it's really about personal relationships. Uh, I would say that I feel our councils, uh, both in my first term and now, in, you know, almost half a year into, or just a little more than half a year into the second term, uh, I feel like our councils have become less partisan. I feel like the, the members sitting around the horseshoe are not waving their party membership cards the way that I remember councils in the early 2000s doing. Um, there's a lot more willingness to work together and to find common ground, to not be entrenched in ideologies, uh, to be pragmatic for our community. So definitely the personal relationship building is is what I start with at the Council Horseshoe. And I can work with, uh, you know, a Susan Stevenson, who's been a card-carrying member of the Conservative Party uh, on one issue, and then turn around and work with Skylar Frank, who's a, a big green uh, party supporter uh, on another issue just as easily. So to be able to have that sort of uh, ability to work across party lines, because it does come down to good idea is just a good idea. It doesn't matter who it's coming from. A, a good question is a good question. And we shouldn't be afraid of those things. In, in the broader community, uh, it certainly is a little bit more difficult conversation. Uh, and it's a lesson I learned uh, very early on, having come from being a constituency staffer running a, a local MP's office for the NDP. Uh, there were a number of people who were hammering on me right away because I wasn't voting uh, the way they wanted on some issues. And I remember the very first issue uh, was a budgetary issue. And really, we were faced with a choice. Do you eliminate uh, the discount bus fare for seniors and the kids under 12 riding free? Or do you give your uh, part-time casual seasonal staff a raise beyond the minimum wage because the Ontario government had canceled uh, the minimum wage increase that the previous provincial government had announced. Uh, and I chose to side with keeping seniors and kids under 12 riding the bus free or a discounted rate because I was impacting more people and because I was able to recognize from the inside that a lot of those, I, you know, I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush, but almost all of those people who were making that minimum wage uh, who were working in our arenas pouring a slushy on a Saturday morning, they weren't trying to make ends meet to keep a roof over their head. These were high school or first-year college students who were making some pocket money, uh, who were going out and buying a new video game. They they weren't worried about purchasing groceries. Uh, so knowing the the you know the choices I was faced with, I chose the greater what I thought was the greater good which was kids under 12 get to ride our transit system for free. That was going to benefit way more young people than uh, a dollar raise for, you know, a hundred staff were casual part-time hours, um, keeping senior bus tickets and passes discounted so that uh, folks who are on a CPP and OAS fixed income were still able to get around to the grocery store, to church, to their doctor's appointments without having to cut corners on their transit use that was serving a greater good to me. So, uh, and I, I pissed a lot of people off, uh, but I stand by the decision that it was, even today, it was the right one. So it, it can be difficult to, to balance those partisan expectations. People had some of them, uh, but you've got to take the time, I find, to explain to people why you're making a, a vote the way you are, put it in some context, and that, often is how you get people won over. It's just explaining the context. They may not agree with you at the end of the day, but they at least understand why you cast a vote the way you did. When you were talking about the decision you had to make, I could tell that it was, uh, there was a bit of a conflict in your voice because you, you want to please everyone. You want the best for everyone, but you at the ultimately at the end of the day, along with your council members around the horseshoe 
have to make the tough decisions and you're not going to please a hundred percent of the people a hundred percent of the time. I don't think I can, I, I probably can openly say every decision you've made, someone has been upset with that decision you've made. Even if you don't know them, they've probably been upset. How do you make the tough decisions knowing that the day-to-day decisions you make around that council table are going to affect the bottom dollar of people's pocketbooks, the, the, their, their livelihoods, whether they have to figure out how they're going to pay for their property taxes or pay for their kids to get into a, a sports uh, team. Like I can imagine it's, it weighs on you as an individual, not, not alone weighs on you as a counselor. Oh, it absolutely does. And, and you said those magic two words, there, property taxes. <laughs> municipalities <laughs> municipalities are the least fairly funded level of government we have i mean property taxes are the most regressive way uh, you can generate tax revenue because it does not take into account a person's ability to pay it is only based on the place where you lay your head at night how much in ontario how much impact has valued that building at so uh, the the person sleeping there has no control over the assessed value of that property so I am always mindful, and that is where I always start my my thought process, is I'm always mindful of what is the financial impact, what is the financial burden that this decision might put on my community. And and I represent one of the lower income wards in the city. Uh, I have a lot of seniors who are on uh, fixed incomes. I have a fair amount of social housing in my ward. Uh, one of my polling districts has the highest uh, per capita rate of single household, uh, single parent households in city. Uh, so I'm mindful of the fact that if I'm raising property taxes, I am taking money out of someone's pocket who might already be struggling to make ends meet. And we're always going to have to raise property taxes because municipalities are not immune to inflationary pressures. We still have to put gas in the police cars and the snow plows and the transit buses. We still have to pay the, the staff who ride along in those fire trucks and those ambulances and cut the grass in our parks. Uh, and they need to be paid fairly too. But I'm mindful of keeping that impact as low as possible because I'm mindful of uh, people uh, like my friend Joyce, who's a longtime uh, member of our community association. Yes, Joyce is in a position where her home is paid for because she worked hard her whole life to pay off that mortgage and she is able to make ends meet on her pension right now. But if we throw an extra $150 on her property tax bill this year and then throw another 100 on the following year and another 100 on the following year, it doesn't take long for that pension to start getting whittled away to the point where now she's got to decide on whether or not she's going to have to skimp on the groceries or maybe if she's going to have to take one of those prescription tablets and cut it in half and only take half of what her doctor wants her to take because she just can't pay for all the, the basics that she needs to pay for in a month. So I always start with that premise is how is this impact going to uh, affect those who are already on the edge of not making ends meet? And then the second factor that I, I weigh in my head is how many people is this going to benefit? You know, is this for the greater good at the end of the day? Uh, I got to confess, besides the comic books, I'm also a bit of a sci-fi nerd. So I I grew up on Star Wars and Star Trek. And uh, that Mr. Spock line about the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few or the one, uh, that's something that's always in my thought process is, am I benefiting more people than I'm hurting with my decision? You you literally have taken the words out of my mouth because when I first started talking to municipal councillors, that's the quote I would use all the time when asking that question. But I always felt like a nerd asking it, but I guess not. From nerd to nerd, I can imagine it is a, a an easy thing to answer when you know it so well. Um, municipalities across Canada are facing a lot of challenges right now and London is not immune to those challenges you talked about housing being uh one of the things that your ward is going through right now uh, I know the provincial government has been uh sort of advocating and even the federal government has been advocating for the municipalities to do more on the housing file but I want to know from you 
And this is not an opinion of council. This is not a direction of council. And this is not a policy of council. This is the deputy mayor's personal opinion. What do you believe is the biggest issue facing your community today? Oh, it's definitely housing and homelessness. That is <laughs> by far and away the biggest issue. Um, it, it touches everything else, whether it is the, uh, you know, feeling of public safety and well-being which I would put in a very close number two, uh, because people are starting to get really worried about their own personal safety as they walk through our downtown, as they use our, our trail system along the Thames River. Um, there's growing concern about their safety when they're out there because they see uh, the encampments. They see the random acts of, of unpredictable aggression, of unpredictable... Uh, mental health episodes, and the average person isn't trained on how to deal with those. So it's natural that that they feel intimidated or scared by that kind of behavior. It's not something that everybody has life experience with. So that is a really key factor. But that housing and homelessness piece is, is the big one, because we are seeing a a wave of situations where people cannot afford to get into the housing ownership market we are seeing a lot of instances of um, not just illegal uh, unlicensed house conversions but unsafe house conversions where you've got 12 people trying to live in a three-bedroom home and mattresses in a basement where there's no fire egress windows installed and if uh, you know a tragedy ever occurred they'd lose their lives so those are situations that we're seeing across the city. Uh, there is not one easy fix because the mental health and addictions piece is part of it. The income inequality is part of it. But the biggest thing the municipality can do is on the inventory side. We in London have a vacancy rate uh, in our housing and rental unit inventory of well under 2%. And it's been floating around that 1.7, 1.6 rate for a while now. You know, CMHC sorry, sorry, says, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I, I just want to know for my own sake, because uh, I'm assuming most people like myself would not know this exact number, but is that the prov provincial like average 2% or is that higher or lower? Because again, that's you're the first person who's actually given me a quantitative number and I'm like, oh, I, I love when people give me numbers that I can ask the, <laughs> okay, tell me in average, is that normal or is that high or is that low? Uh, so it's it's definitely on the low side in terms of comparisons to other municipalities in the province. But more importantly, uh, CMHC uh, says that a, a healthy rental market should have somewhere between 3 and 5% vacancy. And ideally closer to the 5%. We are under 2. So that's a, a real, real problem. Uh, and, and really, we're at functional zero. Because when you talk about that 1.6, 1.7% that's available on the market, most of it is the leftovers that nobody wants. It's the places that are in such a state of disrepair. You know, you've got mold in the washrooms. You've got windows that uh, are, aren't tightly sealed and the winter air blows through in January. Uh, you've got pest infestations in those kind of places. So it really is a situation of functionally, we have zero inventory. Uh, and the best thing that we can do as a municipality is move as fast as we can to give approvals, to get shovels in the ground for all sorts of housing projects across the entire gamut. Single family homes, condos, purpose-built rental apartments, uh, geared to income and affordable units, everything under the sun we need right now. I'm assuming while you want to try to fix this and try to address the housing and homelessness issue, I'm assuming, and I could be wrong here, and I hate to, I like you said, I hate to pay, uh, paint a broad stroke here, but there's probably some nimbyism in your community as well. We don't want. Oh, there's a ton of it. <laughs> yeah, there is a ton of it. We had a, uh, we had a community, uh, we had an application come forward. Uh, this was just within the last uh, eight weeks or so uh, for an infill project that would see a very large old single family home demolished on a very large piece of property and be replaced with 10 townhomes. And the people on the street were outraged that we were destroying the fabric of their community by approving townhouses on a street that only had single family million dollar homes. 
I, I, and I mean, that's, we, we hear that kind of attitude at every planning committee meeting, but that one was so outrageous. We had a police officer show up in uniform and start speaking to how we were going to destroy traffic in her neighborhood and put children at risk. A police officer who, by the way, doesn't work in the traffic enforcement division. Um, we passed that application, but that is the kind of attitude that we run into on every sort of infill project that comes forward. So uh, how do you battle destroying... against NIMBYism then? Because it, no, you're never going to be able to change 100% of people's minds, and you're never going to be able to say you're just going to have to live with it. You're going to have to find are – you, are you, do you try to find a compromise, or do you just have to say – We'd love to like not change your area, but we have to. I, I think maybe I'm getting a little jaded. I'm at the point now where I almost don't care about the NIMBY. When I hear somebody saying 10 townhouses uh. is going to destroy the traffic. And so I come armed. I, I, and so after the public participation meeting closes and it's council's time to speak, I, I will pointedly address those questions and point out that, you know, on a road that's already experiencing uh, 2,600 car trips a day, 10 townhouses is not going to change the traffic pattern in any noticeable way. Uh, and those are the kind of things that I, I will fire back. Uh, in that particular instance that I uh, was talking about, we had somebody who stood up in the gallery and said, you know what you should do? You should sever this lot into three and, and build $3 million homes on those properties. It's a big lot. We could fit $3 million homes there. And so when I got into uh, response and, and debate with my colleagues, I said the last thing we need in London right now is three more million dollar homes. What we need is homes people can afford. Uh, so hey. I, I tackle it head on. I, I am really running out of patience with the nimbyism. Uh, honestly, if it's really egregious, staff don't typically recommend it. If it fits the zoning, it fits the zoning. Does it get to you, though? Because I can imagine the decisions you make, the frustration that you hear from people. I say frustration because I can imagine some of the choice words that you probably get thrown your way through emails, through social media, through uh, even just day-to-day -day going to the grocery store. Do you Have you found the balance of personal and public life to get to you from time to time? Uh, from time to time, it does. Because um, you're a human as that, well, like I am, and, yeah. and everyone has their breaking point. And I, how do you find that balance? So on that very same application, uh, I was uh, approached by somebody in an arena uh, after a hockey game. Oh, Deputy Mayor, I, I can I talk to you for five minutes? And I stopped and I introduced myself and I said, yes, of course. And, and he started railing about that application. And I did my best to respond to the first couple questions reasonably. Uh, but then I, I had to say, you know, respectfully, obviously we're going to disagree on this. And I'm not here on city council business right now. I'm here as part of a hockey team. Um, this is my personal time. This is not my, my on-duty time. So <laughs> the conversation's over. Um, if you want to continue it, you're welcome to send me. I'll get in touch through my office. Um, but for the most part, I actually, I think I'm lucky because I go into my no frills or my Metro to get groceries uh, or, or to the Costco, which is not in my ward, but uh, is in another part of the city. And people do approach me, but they're always very friendly. And, and I always get a lot of, of comments about the appreciation for the work I'm doing. And, uh, recognizing that it's not an easy job and that they're they're grateful that somebody has taken it on who wants to do the work so uh, as much as sometimes i just want to uh you know put on a ball cap and pull up my hoodie and go and get my milk and get home um there's lots of other times when i'm walking through the grocery store and i enjoy having the conversations on the spot i i like the fact that people feel i'm approachable enough that they can do that in the grocery store uh that i'm I'm not on some sort of pedestal where I'm this guy at City Hall uh, that they can't relate to. I, I'm the guy who is drinking a Tim's on a Saturday morning at the Argyle Arena or picking up, uh, you know, soup and craft dinner at No Frills or whatever it happens to be. Uh, I really appreciate that. Um, and I try and do it even in my own outreach. 
uh, I've started doing what I'm calling cycling Saturdays. And so I'll bike to constituents' homes and come on the front porch or on the back patio. Um, if, if there's a concern that they really want me to come and see in person, I'll make the time, I'll set aside a couple hours on the weekend and I'll make the time to go visit them in person at their home. So I, I want to keep that personal connection too. I, I give you credit where credit's due, man, because I can imagine that in a city like London and the large sizes of some of the wards, it's challenging to bike from one end of the ward to another and meet with the constituents, but I'm glad that you're doing it. I want to turn now to my favorite subject in these interviews, and that is tourism. I love tourism. I love coming to my uh, guests' communities and seeing what their community has to offer. Um, and now, as I've said in past, if you come on the show, I will be in your community within a year. So I will be in the city of London when I'm doing my south southwestern tour of Ontario. So Deputy Mayor Lewis, Sean, where should I be stopping with me and my husband to make sure that we see some of the hidden gems that are in the city of London? Well, let me know when you're here and I'll happily uh, join you uh, for a couple of visits to things. Um, listen, we have, uh, my own bias is really going to show here, we have a great craft beer scene in the city. Uh, I definitely recommend uh, checking out, uh, doing a little craft brewery tour. Um, you know, for families, East Park uh, is a fabulous destination uh, with golf, uh, batting cages, go-karts. It's, it's a water park, water slides and, and water features. So that's always fun for families to do. Uh, the 100 Kellogg Lane redevelopment of the old Kellogg's cereal factory, uh, whether it's the factory, uh, which is, you know, a, a kid's entertainment zone, trampolines and, and rope courses and all of those things. The Children's Museum has moved in there. There's an indoor... Uh, a virtual golf range. There's an indoor uh, mini putt. There's all kinds of fun things going on at the factory and it changes regularly. So uh, lots of fun things to do there. Um, there's there's so much that London has to offer. And we actually do a really terrible job, I think, of marketing to our own residents what we have to offer. Uh, if you're here in the summer, there is nothing like spending a Friday night at Labatt Park the world's oldest continuously running baseball park uh, and watching the London majors uh, play a game under the lights on a Friday night. It's just a beautiful old ballpark, have a beer and a hot dog, and enjoy some baseball. Uh, of course, in the winter, Budweiser Gardens is always uh, hopping on a Friday night, London Knights games. Uh, excellent I, hockey being played I, there. I'm seeing a theme with all the naming rights here. <laughs> Was there a lot of breweries in uh, London there for a while or a lot of breweries still there? Well, I told you we have a great craft beer scene, but really we were almost slow to the uh, the races on this one because Labatt was such a huge presence and still is such a huge presence and a major employer in the city. So uh, we definitely uh, love our beer here in London uh, and, and our beer companies love us back by uh, purchasing some naming rights to things. Um, but yeah, there's, there's so many good things to do here and, uh, you know, Fanshawe Pioneer Village and, and the history of the region is always, always worth seeing. And we've just recently, uh, added to the attractions or the, the venues at Fanshawe Pioneer Village because we moved, uh, the old fugitive slave chapel, uh, to Fanshawe Pioneer Village. The council helped, uh, fund that program. Uh, so we've started to diversify and, and show the history of uh, the early black community in London and the indigenous community and the early settlers. So there's lots of, of fascinating history to see there. Uh, there's beautiful uh, art to see and collections of historic artifacts at Museum London. Uh, there's, there's really just so much to, to see and do here. Um, Dundas What's... Place is... Sorry, go ahead. Finish off and then I'll yeah, ask my question. Uh, Dundas Place, our, our Flex Street, uh, we have lots of programming through the summer months, uh, pop-ups, uh, mini concerts, uh, you know, in May, it's a great home for free comic book day. One of my favorites, uh, Victoria park hosts Sunfest and pride and Hume County folk festival and rock the park. It's like, there's a music festival going on every weekend through the summer. So there's always something to see and do here in London. What do you do after a stressful day at council, after a stressful day at work, after a long day, and you just need to go decompress, 
Where where can we find Sean Lewis in the city of London after a long day? Uh, well, I will often just leave City Hall and just walk downtown and find a, a, a patio to make myself comfortable on and have a bite to eat and a cold one to wash away the, the council uh, stress. Um, you will often find me, though, just enjoying our parks, uh, biking around. Uh, but really, my favorite thing to do at the end of the day is I, I am... I will confess a bit of a homebody. I like to come home and get my hands dirty in my garden. Uh, I I have a great vegetable garden. I am very, very thankful for the lessons that I learned from my mom and my grandma in terms of being able to to grow our own food and, uh, you know, even learning to can some of it, make my own salsa and stuff in the fall so that I can enjoy it through the winter months too. So I, I like to jump in the pool in the backyard and I like to get my hands dirty in the garden and uh, put my feet up and relax and a good book or or three or four good comic books you're not the first person to say that they're a homebody who's a municipal <laughs> counselor it must be something in the water that you municipal counselors drink but i want to well, end... go to so many events right you you go to so many things because again it comes back to the difference between mps and and mpps or mlas and a counselor we don't ever leave our community we're we're here you know 52 weeks of the year and we're constantly being invited out to events. So I do enjoy uh, going to a play at the Grand Theater. I do enjoy, uh, you know, I spent this weekend uh, at three different veterans events um, and then at a Pride Festival event as well. I enjoy doing those things, but they're not something that you really get to be off on when, you, when you're there, you're on. You're, you're on as the councillor or the deputy mayor or the mayor. The, the municipal council doesn't get a break from being on. So home is where you get that truly personal space, that downtime. Um, and I will say, uh, although they're all uh, aging out of minor hockey now, all the kids that uh, I've watched go from 10 to 18 and, and moving into adulthood now, uh, they all live in my neighborhood. So I occasionally get drop-ins too. Uh, they they stop in and uh, show up with, uh, particularly now that they're starting to turn 19, they show up and, and ask if I've got time for a beer with them. Uh, they pop by and ask if they can uh, if they can go for a swim with their girlfriends or whatever. So I get some company at home, but it's nice to have that quiet space at home too. So the million dollar question that is going to end this interview, Sean, and you can take as long as you want to answer as short as the time as you want to answer, but I'm assuming you've answered this numerous times. What makes the city of London such a unique place to live, work and raise a family? We are. And apologies to my uh, regional rural community friends who might take uh, a little bit of umbrage at this, but we're the regional capital of Southwestern Ontario. You don't have to go to Toronto. Everything you need is here in London. Uh, we have great neighborhoods, uh, which are communities in and of themselves. I mean, my neighborhood, Argyle neighborhood, I don't have to go any further than 10 minutes for anything that I need in my day-to-day -day life. So it's got the feeling uh, of the small town that I grew up in, but at the same time, I've got all the amenities of a big city at my disposal. I've got the movie theaters, I've got the Grand Theater, I've got Budweiser Gardens, and the Bat Park, and all those sports and music opportunities, uh, great shopping, great restaurants. Uh, and so we're that regional space that offers all the amenities of a big city that you can enjoy without an hour and a half commute to work uh, every day. Uh, we still, uh, although we're losing our advantage on it because of the housing crisis, we're still a pretty affordable place to live as well. Uh, so we bring all those benefits. And, and now the shout out to my rural neighbor friends um we also have the benefit of being able to to jump in the car and in 10 minutes be at a roadside vegetable stand getting sweet corn in in season or fresh tomatoes in season or driving out to Heman's and picking your own fresh strawberries uh right from the farm so we also provide that opportunity to still enjoy that more rural ontario quality of life too because whether it's dorchester or uh Thorndale or Ilderton, like there's these little communities around us that have all of those offerings that are really easy to get to. So uh, we've got all the benefits of a big city. We've also got all the benefits of a small town.
John, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking an hour hour out of your day and sitting down and talking about yourself and talking about the city of London. I say this often, but I say it with respect and uh, admiration that we need people like yourself at the council table. So I appreciate putting your name forward and serving your community and being a strong advocate for your community. We've only known each other for about 55 minutes now, personally, face to face, but you're a wonderful guy at the council table. So thank you so much for doing this. Well, it's, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm happy to talk about what being a municipal elected official looks like, but I have to say really honestly and genuinely that making the jump into municipal politics was the best decision I ever made in life. It's very rewarding to see the work that you do changing people's lives in, in a very, meaningful way and in a period of time that doesn't take forever uh, to see happen. Um, right across the road from me, we've got a brand new $21 million community center uh, with an indoor pool and an indoor gymnasium and an indoor kitchen for like a community kitchen for cooking classes and those kind of things. That was something that our my neighborhood has needed for so long and to be able to cut the ribbon and welcome people in. And I, I've said it before, you know, Every one of my gray hairs I earned from the construction delays on that project. But every smile on my face now is because I look out my window in the morning and I see people using and enjoying it. And whether it's a big project like that, or just getting the pothole fixed at the end of their driveway. Those are the things that matter in people's day-to-day lives. That's why serving in municipal politics is is really a privilege and, and a blessing because I get to make a difference and I get to improve people's lives. And right now I couldn't imagine doing else. So I'm really grateful to, for the opportunity and the support that my community's given me to do this. I want to thank uh, Deputy Mayor Lewis for sitting down with us today, but I also want to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in for another great episode of the Cross Border Interviews. We'll be back again tomorrow with another one. Until then, just remember everyone, just Crossborder Interviews is a division of Miranda Brown Associates Incorporated. Music by Peter Galliardi. Executive produced by Christopher Brown and the Honorable Ricardo Miranda. Visit www.crossborderinterviews.ca for more details. Copyright 2013.